Welcome to Quirky, Creepy, and Freaky, a podcast where I tell you about wonky animal facts. I'm your host, Olivia, and every week I will share with you a different weird fact from the animal kingdom. I don't have any fun news or updates this week that I can think of, so we'll just jump right on into it. It's not super unusual in the animal kingdom for animals to steal the defensive mechanisms of their animal prey, like with our keelback snakes the other week stealing toad poisons, but there are some animals that eat things like sea anemones and then can steal their stinging cells without the stinger going off, and then incorporate them into their own bodies for their own use. Welcome to the fun world of nudibranchs! Nudibranchs are sea slugs, which is a much larger group of organisms that also includes sacoglossins, which are sea slugs that can steal chloroplast from their own algae prey, eglagidae, which is another group of sea slug, and sometimes some people will include some groups of colorful marine flatworms and even sea cucumbers as a sea slug, but flatworms and sea cucumbers are not true sea slugs. They are both completely unrelated species or groups of species in actually a completely different phyla. So it is really just the nudibranchs, your sacoglossins, and the aglagidae that are your true sea slugs. So nudibranchs, like other slugs, are gastropod mollusks. But unlike your generic brown slug that you would see in your garden, they come in an incredible diversity in shape, color, and even life form. Some of them are only a couple millimeters to a couple centimeters big at full size, while others can get to several inches, like the Spanish dancer that is the largest sea slug out there that can get up to 16 inches in length or 40 centimeters for those of you using metric units. The incredible majority of nudibranchs are strictly ground-dwelling, just crawling around the ground as slugs do, but there are some species, like the Spanish dancer, that is capable of swimming away to get away from predators, and there are a group of species that are planktonic and swim along the surface of the water for the duration of their life. The full classification of sea slugs is honestly a little bit crazy, and was referred to in one article I read as a topic of recent revision, which I like to think means that the nudibranch taxonomists are fighting, no one can agree on anything, But really, it just means that the groups as they exist now are going to change multiple times, are currently changing, and it's probably going to be a while before it really settles out and they have everything sorted down. So our main taxonomy classification system, uh, just as it goes basically, is kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. Things do get more complicated from there. It's not unusual for a species to have a subclass thrown in, maybe a superorder or a suborder. And it's not like I'm looking at a whole lot of species classifications all the time, but this is definitely the first time I have seen this many in-between levels, so for this insanity, I have to share it with you. So, as I said, they are gastropods, which is class gastropoda under phylum mollusca, but then from there we have subclass heterobranchia, infraclass euthanura, and then even from there it goes another level into subterclass ringiplura. First time I've seen anything with a subterclass. After that subterclass, we do finally get into superorder, nudiplura, and then we reach our order of the day, nudibranchia. 
Nudibranchia does still have seven suborders at the moment, but there, and then there are at least 3,000 known species of nudibranch with more likely to be discovered. Nudibranchs are divided into two groups, uh, not based on a taxonomic classification. This is really based on body type, life history sort of situation. We have the Dorid nudibranchs and the Aeolid nudibranchs. Dorid nudibranchs have a branchial plume on the back, which is where their gills are. And you may actually already be familiar with Dorid nudibranchs as the sea bunny that has gone around the internet a few times for being super cute is a Dorid nudibranch. The Aeolid nudibranchs have structures along their back called serrata, and it's these structures that house the nematocysts that they steal from their prey. So one species that some of you might be familiar with is the Glaucus atlanticus, which is known as the blue sea dragon, is an Aeolid nudibranch. These guys eat the Portuguese man of war. Aeolid nudibranchs eat nadarians, which is a phylum of animals that includes organisms like jellies, hydroids, corals, as well as sea anemones. Some species are specialists that feed on one type of organism, like Glaucus atlanticus that I just mentioned, that feeds on the Portuguese man-of-war, which is actually a colonial hydroid sort of organism, a siphonophore. But there are other species that will eat other things along with their nadarian prey, including things like sponges and sea squirts. Nadarians all have one thing in common. They have the stinging cells called nematocysts. Unlike wasps with their stingers, nadarians don't really have the same sort of conscious control over their stingers. It's really more of a reflexive sort of situation, which is why they don't have to be alive for them to sting you. And why you shouldn't just go poke jellyfish on the beach unless you know for absolute sure, absolutely certain, that it is their bell that you are poking. Nematocysts have a hair-like trigger that needs to be touched in order for the cell to be triggered. Once it's triggered, a barbed tubule that contains venom shoots out of the nematocyst and attacks whatever triggered the stinger, be it a predator or prey. So then when the nudibranch eats their nadarian prey, whether it's a hydroid or a sea anemone, while some of the nematocysts do get digested, both fired and unfired, while they're eating their prey, some of them are just taken through the nudibranch's digestive tract and are then engulfed by cells called nidophages, which are cells that the nudibranch has that are meant to engulf and then over time eventually degrade the nematocyst. And then that nematocyst is taken to the tips of the serrata for the nudibranch to use. When the nudibranch steals the nematocyst for its own use, the structure is then referred to as a kleptonidae. So then what's a good kleptoplasty event without, without a good klepto word for the result? We like a good klepto. What is spectacular about this is that all of this happens without triggering the nematocyst to fire. They manage to not trigger the stinging cells of an animal that can sting you, whether it's dead or alive. So how does this happen? It turns out a good portion of the answer is mucus, and it has actually been known for well over a century that mucus is the answer. At first, it was supposed that the nudibranchs just get covered in their prey's mucus, while they're eating their prey, like if a nudibranch was crawling through some anemones and just gets coated with the mucus in the process. But this is actually not what's happening, and scientists figured out in the early 2000s that the nudibranch is actually producing the same mucus as their prey organism. 
A study by Greenwood and colleagues back in 2004 sorted a lot of this out and even investigated what's going on when a species can prevent stings from multiple organisms. They looked at the nudibranch Aeolidia papillosa, which eats a variety of sea anemone species. They noticed that this nudibranch is able to prevent stings from a variety of anemones. It's not just the one species that they can prevent stings from. So what they did is that they used mucus-coated gelatin probes to mimic the nudibranch coming in contact with the anemone. Since the nematocysts have barbs, they do grab on and hold on to their gelatin probes, so the researchers were able to tell pretty easily if they did or didn't attack the gelatin probe. So they had their Aeolidia papillosa with several different anemones that they would eat in the wild, all collected from a variety of sites across North America, and then to make the probes, they took the gelatin probe and then just rubbed it along the nudibranch's back a few times in order to coat it in their mucus. For each nudibranch, they made three mucus probes. So then they took their probe, booped the assorted anemone tentacles with the probes, and then with those results, found that the mucus from the nudibranchs prevents the nematocyst from firing. The effect is limited to the anemone species on which the nudibranch was feeding on, so if they're immune to one anemone sting, that's not blanket protection from all anemones. But they did also find that the nudibranch's mucus can change to be able to prevent stings from another species if it switches to feeding on a different species. And they are feeding on two different species of sea anemone at the same time. They will produce mucus for both anemones and are then able to be protected from being stung from both species. So then you might be thinking, that's great, but isn't the mucus just on the outside? Is all of them just mucus to prevent the nematocyst from being fired through the whole digestive tract? Are nudibranchs just tubes of mucus? To which I would say the mucus is really pretty much just on the outside. They do have some internal physical structures that protect the nudibranch from the cells in the, in the case that the cells do fire off, they have some protein coating on along their mouth and digestive tract. But in at least in some species, in order to protect their insides, the nudibranch will specifically select an immature nematocyst to steal from their prey because the immature nematocysts are incapable of being triggered. Once the nematocyst is engulfed and brought into the serrata, they will continue and finish developing and then stay there for a couple of days to a couple of weeks. The papers that I read didn't really say how the nudibranch necessarily knows how to pick the immature nematocyst. It could just be based on a cell size sort of function, but that is at least one instance of how they protect their insides from the nematocyst. So unlike previous episodes where at some point I recommend you not touching the things, while the sea slugs could sting you, I suppose, they won't really be harmful to people. So while you still maybe shouldn't mishandle or poke at them too much, you can at least still pick them up and scold them for their thievery without dire consequences. Thank you for joining me on this week's episode, and be sure to tune in next week to next week's episode, and share us with a friend or family or whoever you wish to potentially scar with weird animal facts. Uh, you can find us on Amazon Music, Audible, and Podbean, with that list expanding soon. 
If you have a favorite quirky, creepy, or freaky animal fact, send them on in at quirkycreepyfreakypod at gmail.com and it may be featured in a future episode. Audio editing and recording done by me, Olivia Streit. Intro music created by Kaylee Streit. Be sure to check out her YouTube channel for some cello Celtic music. Thank you for listening!